Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Rick Banks. I'm a law professor at Stanford Law School and one of the co-hosts of this weekly program. We offer listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. You should know that this conference call is live and unedited. Part of what makes the program unique is that we assemble an outstanding group of experts and then give them only six minutes to present. The presentations are followed by a live Q&A period during which we pose questions to the experts and the experts pose questions to each other. They often challenge each other. The result is an unusually informative, provocative, and entertaining discussion. What happens next, importantly, is designed to be politically and ideologically neutral. Listeners are enabled and encouraged to draw their own conclusions. We strive to bring together speakers who, while experts, offer different perspectives and are likely to disagree. We think this commitment to engagement across divides of partisan or ideological difference is especially crucial in this time of political polarization. We end each program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker, something that is sorely needed in this time. Now I'm pleased to turn it over to Larry, who will introduce the speakers. Thanks, Rick. Hi, this is Larry Bernstein. This week's topics include COVID, logistics, cybersecurity, and virtual events. I am joined in this discussion with two co-hosts, Rick Banks, who we just met, and Mitch Feynman, who works for an AI startup focusing on search advertisement placement. Our first speaker today is Joshua Schiffer, who is an associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, specializing in vaccine and infectious disease. Josh recently published an op-ed in the New York Times about imperfect solutions to COVID. Josh highlighted that with so much uncertainty related to COVID treatments and testing, that we should not demand perfection. Instead, we should be looking for what is good enough to reduce the level of contagion and the virus's death rate. I want to learn more about how we should wear masks, what material we should use, and its likely efficacy. I'm also interested in learning about how we can do clinical trials for multiple treatments with smaller sample sets simultaneously. I also want to hear more about whether we should take the first vaccine that becomes available or whether we should wait for the vaccine with the best results. Or should we take multiple different vaccines and take them immediately after they are released and available to the public? What happens next then moves to the subject of logistics. Our first speaker in this segment is Tim Denier, who is an analyst with ACT Research. Tim is going to tell us about trends in rail, trucking, and shipping. Freight is an excellent forward indicator on trends in the economy. I want to hear about whether trucking is picked up and whether it's uniformly improving around the country. I'm also interested in hearing about whether shipping with other countries is increasing uniformly. I want to confirm Chinese officials' assertion that their economy is fully back and running. What are we seeing in our West Coast port activity? Europe has seen a second wave of COVID infections. Are we already seeing a downtick in trade with our eastern port cities? Our second speaker in the logistics segment is Mark Levinson. I thoroughly enjoyed Mark's book entitled The Box, which is a history of the shipping container. It is a fantastic book that is really a history of shipping logistics and how the container revolutionized the global shipment of goods. If I were to teach a class in business management, I would select Mark Levinson's book The Box as first on the syllabus. Mark recently published a new book entitled Outside the Box, How Mobilization Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas. His latest work also includes an update on the container market. 
Mark has an article in this weekend's Wall Street Journal about how the container ship has gotten too big and is now slower, less efficiently managed, and often behind schedule. The combination of COVID and the uncertain delivery times from these mammoth ships means that businesses are moving away from just-in-time inventory management and building up inventories again. What happens next then pivots to cybersecurity. Today we are speaking Rob Kanaki, who is a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. He served from 2001, 2011 to 2015 as Director for Cybersecurity Policy at the National Security Council, responsible for the development of presidential policy on cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Rob has co-authored a book with Richard Clark entitled The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Rob is going to tell us about whether our voting systems are hackable and the risks we face in this presidential election in just 10 days, how are big banks protecting themselves from cyber attacks, and how we should manage risks to hacking in our personal lives. This is obviously a very troubling topic, and most of us are completely unaware how to protect ourselves and our business. Our final theme this week is about virtual events. Our first speaker in this segment is Wendy Ferber. She attended Penn with both Mitch Feynman and me. Wendy is the CEO of Connect Our Central, and her company does virtual team-building events for firms that want to build camaraderie when coworkers cannot get together in person. Organizations need to build morale, and Wendy will explore the options available to organizations during COVID and beyond. Our final speaker is Howard Giffner, who is my college fraternity brother. I've known Howard since I was a freshman in college. I was very impressed with his performance as social chairman of our fraternity, how he certainly can throw a party. After graduating college, instead of heading to Wall Street like the rest of us, Howie set up his own company called Paint the Town Red. Howie is now CEO of the Event Leadership Institute that does pandemic meeting and event design. How we'll discuss what is happening with conventions. Since March, in-person conventions have ceased and virtual conferences have replaced them. Virtual events are much easier to organize. Just look at this program, what happens next. It didn't exist before COVID, and it now has 3,000 subscribers who participate in both live and recorded broadcasts. What happens next gets incredible speakers and a very broad and engaged audience from all over the world. It would be impossible to do this program as a weekly in-person event. I want to learn from Howie how firms engage with their customers and promote their brand with, the, with these virtual events. Can virtual events be productive, or will we drift back to an in-person event as soon as it is safe to do so? All right, that ends my introduction for the speakers. I want to announce that What Happens Next has its own website. All episodes of What Happens Next are currently available on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. You can stream and download full episodes, or alternatively, each guest six-minute talk along with the question-answer period. You'll be able to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We'll be posting on our website links to podcast directories once they're both live and ready to go. The website will have upcoming agendas and much more, so check out the new website. For the ease of a link to the website, it will be available on the Evite invitation that I've already sent you or in my emails to follow. All right, let's get started. Um, I'd like to turn it over to our first speaker, uh, Josh Schiffer. Josh, as I mentioned, is a professor at the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington in infectious disease and vaccines. Go ahead, Josh. Thanks. So good morning. In regard to the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. has been in a peculiar and precarious situation for the last six months. Nearly all states have been at an effective reproductive number close to one. 
The effective reproductive number is defined as the average number of people infected by a single infected person at that point in time. This number is critically important because if it climbs to even a slightly higher value, say 1.2 or 1.4 for several weeks, a surge in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths becomes predictable within the next one to two month window. This is what occurred in Florida, Arizona, and Texas over the summer and it's what is occurring now in the Northern Plains and Mountain West. It appears very likely that thousands of American families will soon experience the tragic loss of a loved one. However, there is a path to limit the scope of the suffering. There's a potential tipping point in the other direction. If we can lower the number to comfortably below one, then cases will contract and we may have an appropriate safety buffer to allow opening of schools. The key, is to not let perfect be enemy of the good. We must accept imperfect solutions and implement them broadly and strategically. The first intervention to consider is testing. Korea, Taiwan, and China's experience points to the fact that widespread testing paired with comprehensive contact tracing is sufficient to severely limit the extent of a local epidemic. Testing has been a well-documented failure in the U.S. based on lack of availability initially and then long turnaround times. However, newly available rapid and inexpensive tests provide results in 15 minutes. If given two to three times per week at universities, schools, and, and for essential workers, this could allow rapid identification and elimination of case clusters. And despite issues with both false negative and false positive results, the benefits of this approach would far outweigh the cost. Next are masks. Masks are a mediocre tool at the individual level, but remarkably effective when applied to the entire population. My research group's mathematical modeling suggests that masks probably only filter roughly 50% of viral particles. However, this effect is amplified when both the transmitter and exposed person are masked, and because most transmissions occur from people who are not yet symptomatic and aware of their own infection, universal masking is critically important because it protects during the most dangerously contagious stage of disease. If implemented widely enough, masks provide herd protection to the minority of people who choose not to mask, simply because these people are less likely to come into contact with an infected person. Even a slight increase in masking from current levels could lower the effective reproductive number to less than one. Indeed, widespread masking likely explains much of the success in Japan and many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa where testing has been used more sparingly. There's also a potential critical role for imperfect therapies. One of the major unrecognized failures of the pandemic response has been inefficient testing and licensure of treatments. I need to be clear. The only way to learn if a drug works is in a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trial. Yet only a tiny percentage of people infected worldwide have enrolled in such trials. Moreover, most have been performed in late disease among hospitalized infected people. There's a much higher likelihood of success if we treat early. COVID-19 affords us this opportunity. There's a five-day window between onset of first symptoms and hospitalization. We should capture people during this early stage and treat them at home. It's the equivalent of attacking a forest fire when it's limited to an acre, rather than trying to put it out when it is spread across the entire state. Indeed, we know from viral infections like Ebola, HIV, and zoster that early treatment is associated with far better clinical outcomes. 
Thankfully, new innovative trials are taking this approach. Even a broadly distributed drug that keeps only a moderate percentage of people out of the hospital could be a difference maker. The final consideration is vaccines. Like everyone, it is my profound hope that some or all of the vaccines currently in phase three testing will be almost completely protective and can be rolled out rapidly. However, there must also be plans for low supply of a vaccine that shields barely enough people to meet FDA criteria for licensure. We must consider that a vaccine may limit contagiousness even in people who get infected despite the vaccine, and that this effect can be powerful, promoting more rapid herd immunity in the population. Clinical trials that measure this outcome should be strongly considered, including nimble and fast human challenge studies in healthy young people. Depending on the properties of the vaccine, targeting the most likely spreaders of infection, rather than those at highest risk of severe infection, may counterintuitively prevent the most deaths. All sectors of the public must therefore be properly educated to accept a licensed vaccine. Widespread uptake of a modestly efficacious vaccine product in the right target population will save more lives than low uptake of a perfect vaccine. The four different interventions I described are quite different, but they all share one feature. Each will occasionally fail. However, we should not let these anecdotes mislead us. Behind every super spreader event that occurs despite testing protocols and masking is a counterfactual story in which the event would have been far worse without these strategies. When implemented together, imperfect interventions hold enormous power. This lesson is relevant for saving tens of thousands of lives over the next 12 months, but also for the next inevitable pandemic when it arrives. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. All right, let's get, um, we're going to open directly with a question and answer period um, for Josh. Um, let's start out with the, um, some of the questions you raised about the vaccine. Um, and you highlight a very interesting point that we need to target um, the most likely spreaders. Uh, other um, advocates for who should get the vaccine first have, have focused on first responders and the elderly. Um, why do you want to focus on a different group um, like the, the, um, the likely spreaders? And how would government ascertain who those likely spreaders are in advance to label them out? Yeah, so I would say the answer actually depends on the characteristics of the vaccine. So if, if there is a vaccine that proves itself to be directly protective to the elderly and the immunocompromised, then I think that's the appropriate population to target first. However, if the vaccine is more effective in younger people uh, and, and people who have been proven to predispose to transmission and in particular super spreader events, and at the moment that university students, but it's a, you know, it's a moving, uh, has been a moving target throughout the pandemic, then that's the more appropriate uh, population to, to target. And so the answer to the question will really depend uh, on what the vaccine efficacy data looks like. And the, the really difficult detail here is that, uh, as I think many of you know, there, there will be an early look uh, by the Data Safety Monitoring Board at, at the initial results of the trial. And in all likelihood, that look will, will give some glimpse about the efficacy of the vaccine, but probably not sufficient detail to parse out the question you asked. 
And so there, there's an argument among biostatisticians to try to keep these trials going, even if there's a strong signal of success, so that we can really be judicious in our allocation of the vaccines. Actually, Josh, this, this is Rick Banks. Let me follow up on that. How, how common is it that you have dramatically different rates of efficacy across different population groups? And we should unusual. Yeah, it's really. So I think the question, Rick, I, I you, you went out a little bit, but the question is, how common is it to have different uh, F, rates of efficacy among different groups? I, I think exactly. it's quite quite common uh, there and, and it's it's so well understood that vaccines are now often designed with different populations in mind I think the the best example of this is the, the zoster vaccine that recently came out that has high efficacy the the reason that it was thought to have high efficacy is there was a something called an adjuvant added to the vaccine product which really appears to boost efficacy in elderly populations and so there has been some consideration of this in terms of developing a diverse portfolio of vaccine products uh, with, with some sort of vague eye on, on who might be the most likely populations to receive different vaccines uh, as, as time goes on. Just to kind of follow up on that, um, we had in a previous week um, Ofer Levy from Harvard's vaccine uh, department. He mentioned that historically um, the elderly have generally had a very poor response uh, to many vaccines that in fact for in a typical flu vaccine um, the reason why it's only 60 or 70 percent effective is it does very poorly among the elderly but very good among the young if going back to your arguments about 1.0 or whatever that reproductive rate is and if we knew that the vaccine was not going to be very effective in the elderly would you therefore encourage um, us to vaccinate the young to get the, the numbers below one? Or would you say I'm more concerned about your chance of, of death, which is much higher among the elderly than the young? Uh, what, how do you value your concern about contagion versus death? Right. I, I think that, again, it all comes back to what the data looks like. Uh, given murky data, I. I do find the idea of vaccinating the most likely spreaders extremely attractive because it it sort of turns off the spigot. Uh, and you can be a little more nuanced about it and think that there's really nobody who walks into an assisted living facility or uh, an elder care facility of, of any variety who should not be vaccinated early. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that's been the experience across the country that hospitals tend to fill up when, when these centers get hit hard. And so there, there are certain areas where you can, you can target young people and you can be even more, uh, you know, precise in, in how you go about that. And I think there's a similar argument for vaccinating the healthcare force. Not, to, not because they're the highest risk of spreading to other people, but simply because that's a population you wish to preserve given the possibility of a, a surge of cases. Uh, but, but, but then beyond that, I think at the moment that the university student population is a very attractive target for the reasons you state. And are they, it, it, I've heard about, going back to your point about these super spreaders, um, I saw an article, I think it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, that said that, um, it turns out that 
the super spreaders are, are really the guys that push up massive infections that most people don't infect other people, but some people infect a lot of people. And to your point, if we could inoculate those people who are going to spread it to a lot of people, that'd be terrific. I guess my question is, is in advance, how do we know who those people are that they're super spreaders? Is there something um, physiologically about them that it gives it away? Is it the type of employment that they have? Is it the type of interactions they have with the public? Or is there something, how do we, how do we figure out who those people are? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question. And my answer is that it's been a moving target. We've our, my group's researched this extensively, and we have a model that really makes the point that it's the intersection of when a person who's shedding at a very high viral load, which is actually usually when they're pre-symptomatic, usually over a very narrow window of time. So it might just be 12 to 24 hours. When they enter a crowded, unventilated room where there are lots of other people. And so that's the criteria, but when you look demographically, that criteria has shifted. It started, there, there were very well-publicized outbreaks in meatpacking plants, uh, on fishing boats, and in our neck of the woods, uh, in army barracks. And then it moved to university students. And I'm, I'm on a call with our Department of Health every week, and this may be early to say this, but there's sort of a canary in the coal mine perspective that it's now shifting again and that they're seeing a lot of what I would call smaller super spreader events, but they're really important because they're, they're more common. And what they're seeing is that people tend to trust the people in their lives. And so there's been a lot of social events where people might have 10 people over to their house uh, mm-hmm. and, and all of those people get infected. And that's traditionally a place where people have been very reluctant to masking. And so when we start to get data and we're reassured that we see whatever 90% of people wearing masks on the street, they might be masking in circumstances where they're least predisposed to transmit the virus. Uh Whereas when they have nine people over to their house, that may be actually when masking is most efficacious. And for that reason, there's actually a particular concern about Thanksgiving uh, because that is potentially you know, a, a time when all of us would, would really wish to let our guard down for a day uh, and be with the people we love and, and uh, you know, not wear a mask all day. And so we're starting to see an uptick in events like that. So it's really a question of tracking the epidemiology very closely and, and being uh, on top of it. And is it behavior that makes you a super spreader or is there something about um, you as a person so for, what I mean by that is, it, is it something about how you expel the virus or how you create it, or is there something, let me give you an example of how normally you think of it as behavior. During the HIV epidemic, uh, we always heard about this flight attendant from New York who flew to San Francisco and it was able to infect something like 100 men. And so we thought that you know, closing the bathhouses in San Francisco would change behaviorally the ability for that uh, disease to was spread. But I think in this case, um, it's not so much if, if if a number of us would not wear masks inside, most of us would not spread the disease, but there's certain people who would spread it very effectively and sicken a number of people. So is it more behavior or is it very specific to that individual uh, and how he expels the virus that makes it so virulent? So 
the behavior is actually is an absolute prerequisite. Uh, I, I would define that behavior, you know, I would sort of split that into unnecessary behaviors like fraternity parties and weddings where you, simple steps could be taken to avoid infection and then essential workers who have no choice. But as to the biology, uh, it's remarkable. So because the early phase of infection when viral loads are highest is pre-symptomatic, group studies viral load uh, among many infections. That's what we do. And as of this week, I'm aware of about 25 to 30 people on Earth who have contributed early viral load data. Uh, we have very little information on an early infection. I, I do think that's about to change. So the answer is we don't know. There, there's definitely anecdotal evidence that it's not just high viral loads. So there, there, you know, the chorus practice outbreak that occurred north of Seattle uh, I think is pretty good evidence that when people sing, when people yell, uh, and, and of course when they're coughing or sneezing, that that accentuates the risk. But it's not totally understood whether somebody who's completely asymptomatic just walks into a room and is just having a normal conversation whether that person could potentially be a super spreader. I, I suspect the answer is yes, given given how well the virus is spread around the globe. But but largely we are, uh, you know, looking at anecdotal uh, events. You, rather you mentioned in the talk that there was a point in your uh, in your when you when you get the virus that you're most dangerous, that you uh, you're most contagious to the outside world. When do you think that is? in the part of the process, um, is it, are you symptomatic at that point? Are you not symptomatic? Is it day two or day three? Is that what makes this so much more difficult to manage? Yeah, I think it's it's about day five. Uh, that, but But the window is probably variable, so it might be as soon as day two. It might be longer, up to a week or a little bit more, usually. It occurs in the pre-symptomatic phase, uh, although people are still contagious during the early symptomatic phase. But usually by the time somebody has become, you know, by, by the time somebody's been symptomatic for a week, and we're, we're even talking about critically ill patients in the hospital, usually the viral loads that they're shedding are very, very low and, and sometimes absent. And so that has, if I had to pin one reason on why this has been such a challenge globally, it would be pre-symptomatic transmission. I think it's really critical. And probably asymptomatic transmission plays a pretty important role as well. And what I mean by that is a person who never becomes symptomatic uh, at all. The limited data we have suggests that asymptomatic people shed at the same viral loads as pre-symptomatic people in the early stage of infection. Uh, and why is that? Because if you mentioned before that one of the most successful ways of getting the virus out there is to cough um, or to sneeze, if you're asymptomatic and you're not coughing and sneezing, why are you so um, dangerous? Yeah, well, I think that's it's a great question, and I, I'm not sure that the le I'm not sure it's understood whether the level of contagion is quite equivalent. It's it's shades of gray, but the viral load is equivalent. But it's theoretically possible that two people with the same viral load. Uh, might have different levels of contagiousness to the people around them uh, based on some of the things I mentioned, you know, like singing and, and yelling and so forth, uh, but also 
perhaps more subtle things that somebody who's pre-symptomatic might be coughing occasionally and it just doesn't really meet the threshold of what they notice or what in, encumbers their day-to-day -day life. But I, it, there, without question, there, there's been documented asymptomatic transmission and in particular asymptomatic transmission among school children, uh, which is relevant because that's, you know, the, the younger the age cohort, the more likely uh, the higher percentage of people who are asymptomatic. I want to go back to masks for a second. Um, one of the things um, that you mentioned is there's an interaction between what we do and, uh, and our behavior. Um, if masks don't really work that well, let's say that they are um, as you, imperfect, as you said, let's say they reduce the chance of viral uh, by 50%, um, but be, be because you are wearing a mask, you engage much more in the outside world, you, you enter in conversations in much closer quarters, um, and maybe you do it much more frequently. So, for example, just imagine you did it twice as much wearing a mask. Are we back to being even, Stephen? Does wearing a mask give you a false sense of security? Um, should Would you be recommending that we wear masks but you know, not really interact with people? Like, we're, How does it affect behavior? Yeah, so that's something that in infectious diseases is called risk compensation, and it's been ex studied extensively for the use of antiviral post-exposure prophylaxis for people with HIV. I, you know, I can only venture a guess at this, so this would be more of an opinion than a fact, but I, my sense is that people who wear masks in general are uh, more concerned about the virus and, uh, with, with, you know, with, with exceptions. And so I'm not as concerned about risk compensation with masking uh, the, the, than other things. I, I think where risk compensation will be very important is with vaccines because there, I think the instinct that we all have is that this is just going to end one day, but it's not. It's going to be messy. There's going to be a rollout of vaccine that may or may not be perfect. There won't be enough of it. Certain groups will be vaccinated at, you know, with priority over others. Certain people will refuse vaccines. So there, there will continue to be periodic uh, events and, and spread of infection, even if the reproductive numbers less than one over the years and, or, you know, as the vaccine gets rolled out. And what ends up driving the whole thing is the, the efficacy of the vaccine, how quickly the vaccine is rolled out, but then also how quickly we relax physical distancing and masks. And so you could envision a situation where we do pretty well with the vaccine rollout, but we're still at some risk and society opens up very quickly and that really uh, allows conditions for the virus to grow. And so I think your question will be most relevant for how policymakers and how the general population uh, adjust to when, when we start to vaccinate large segments of the population. Josh, thank you. All right, we're going to go, move on to our second uh, stage of this conversation, moving on to logistics. Our first speaker is Tim Denier, who is a lead analyst at ACT Research's Transportation Group, and he's a primary author for their ACT freight forecast. Tim, why don't you tell us what's happening in global logistics? Thank you, Larry, and, and great discussion so far, uh, and, and hello, everyone. Um, <clears throat> as Larry said, I'm a, I'm a freight and, and manufacturing analyst here at, at 
Active Research, and, and uh, you might know us if, if you follow the uh, the monthly data that we produce on, on North American Class 5 through 8 commercial vehicles, which which covers, it's all the medium and, and heavy-duty truck and bus manufacturers, and, and we use that data to uh, to forecast a number of important variables, including truck production, freight rates, uh, electric vehicle adoption rates, and pretty soon used truck prices. So um, I'll, I'll close with a, a few comments on, on electrification, but uh, but we'll start the story with the, in the supply chain and, and freight economics space here. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, of unprecedented shocks this year as a result of the pandemic, of course. Um, I'll focus on, on the North America trucking uh, and rail and uh, the global uh, ocean shipping markets. Uh, so... A key takeaway is, is, is how COVID has accelerated the cycle and swung pricing power uh, back to asset owners who were suffering through a rough freight recession and, and rate downturn uh, before the pandemic. Um, early in the, in the first wave, there was a, an inventory drawdown as, as people stuffed their pantries, uh, and then the shutdown halted economic e- activity, and, and you know, the auto and truck plants were down for about six weeks uh, as we figure out how to deal with the virus, uh, or start to, uh, and then... Uh, and then, of course, we got the, the $2 trillion stimulus that, that drove a surge in, in good spending, which was also a substitution away from services, which are largely unavailable in the economy right now, um, <clears throat> which, along with the, the subsequent reopening and restocking, uh, has helped freight demand to, to recover really strongly. So um, on the supply side, there were two important shocks. Um, demand for heavy trucks was was already weak because the, the industry had, had overcapacitized in 2018 and 19 into the, the trade war, which, which hammered freight demand. Uh, so when, when Class 8 production uh, was brought to it knees, its knees in the second quarter with uh, builds down 70% year over year, uh, it actually helped clean up that overcapacity uh, faster than normal. And now because of the, the dynamics of this very uh, durable fleet, um, that's going to be more important next year where it's going to keep the fleet from growing uh, too much and, and keep capacity relatively tight. But the more immediate shock uh, is because when when demand and, and rates uh, plummeted in April during the shutdown, um, it created a driver shortage that's proving difficult to fix. I think the fact that only a quarter of the 100,000 or so four higher trucking jobs that were that were lost in, in March and April um, have come back as of September. Um, I think that's the main reason that spot rates for truckload shipments are now up about 48% year over year, net of fuel, uh, which has never happened before. Uh, so driver shortages are, are, are partly cyclical, and, and this will eventually pass as driver pay has already started to go up. But uh, <clears throat> re-engaging driver capacity, this cycle, I think, will take longer than normal for, for a number of reasons, uh, which include you know, demographics, uh, the federal drug and alcohol clearinghouse that started in, in January and already has 40,000 violations, um, constrained driver school capacity, uh, and a strong construction market where one isn't required to take annual drug tests. Uh, I'm happy to expand on any of that in the the Q&A, but uh, one prediction I can make with confidence uh, is that contract freight rates will be rising significantly over the next several quarters um, because that spot market is is priced on a transactional basis every day, and it's it's a minority of the industry volumes, and it's an excellent leading indicator of of the longer-term contract market which isn't much longer term, it's only about a year. But 
<clears throat> I can also say with uh, with good conviction that, that spot rates will start to fall on a year-over-year year year basis uh, in the second half of next year, but it's not clear to me if that's really the end of the cycle or just difficult comparisons, uh, because even though we are forecasting Class 8 truck production to recover as quickly as ever in, in 2021, up 40% next year, uh, that's still going to be about 20% below the, the peak in 2019, and, and it only adds about 2% uh, to, the, to the highway fleet next year. So while the order rates do suggest that there's demand for even more production, um, the supply chain constraints always limit the speed of the, the production recovery. So uh, I don't think we're going to be able to build much more than, than we're currently forecasting. But uh, coming back to the demand side of freight, Inventory restocking is, is driving a, a surge in, in container imports uh, following the, the massive shock earlier in the, in, in the year. While the inventory restock is, is you know, at least partly temporary, I think there's going to be a secular tailwind to freight uh, from inventory growth over the next few years because e-commerce is more inventory intensive uh, because of next day delivery. And we don't expect the large share gains in e-commerce to reverse after the pandemic. So uh, part of the inventory tailwind is, is more permanent. This is showing up at the ports, of course, where container imports uh, have risen 34% from the bottom in May uh, through August. Uh, we don't have the full September numbers, but it's, it's looking similar. And they've swung from double-digit year-over-year declines for most of the year uh, to about 8% growth in imports for, for the month of August uh, and similar in September. Uh, though I, I would point out that uh, container exports um, are still down uh, you know, 5 to 10% in the last few months, uh, so, so exports have not recovered uh, nearly as quickly. Um, just looking at September on the West Coast, uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach, um, you know, the largest uh, port complex in the country, was was up 16% year over year uh, in September on import loaded imports. Uh, and obviously, this this wave seems like it's likely to last through the holidays. Um, <clears throat> so it does sort of confirm to answer your question, Larry, on, on China getting back uh, up yeah. and running. I would say yes. <laughs> um, on the railroads, Q4 is on track, uh, pun intended, to be the the first positive quarter for volumes uh, on a year-over-year basis over the past eight quarters. So the freight recession is, is in the process of ending right, right now in, on the railroads. Um, the recovery is being driven by food, grain, and, and most of all intermodal, um, while, and even auto is back to, to slightly up. Uh, but coal and petroleum are still down a lot. Uh, in fact, rail intermodal capacity is, is so tight right now that, that for those surging West Coast container imports, uh, it's been effectively sold out since August when the Union Pacific slapped a $5,000 per load peak season surcharge on all non-contract West Coast imports. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, we've been in a, in a pretty nasty freight recession for most of the past two years. So you know, easy comps alone set, up, set us up for decent growth next year. And I think Q2 21 volumes will probably be up double digits compared to the shutdown on you know, a year-over-year basis um, with class 8 tractor fleet that's, that's going to be roughly the same size. So <clears throat> there's also a good chance that the, uh, the industrial economy recovers next year after a couple of rough years, which could uh, help offset the re reversal of this services to goods substitution that we've experienced this year. Um, so we, we do expect that to be a headwind in the second half of next year, uh, assuming a vaccine is widely available. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic overall on the, on the freight cycle, and, and um, I think the strength of, of the industrial recovery, you know, is, is a is a big variable, and, and certainly in no small part dependent on the uh, the election and, and trade policy. So, um, so there's we'll, we'll know more about that soon. Um, okay, Tim, I'll come back to the Q and A in just a few minutes. 
Let me uh, switch it over to Mark Levinson. Uh, he is the recent author of a book called Outside the Box. Uh, Mark, go ahead. Tell us about globalization. Sure. Thank you for having me here. Globalization, as everyone knows, is one of the most controversial phenomena of our time. I mean, everyone can remember that Donald Trump attacked radical globalization to help get elected in 2016. And, uh, of course, the supporters of Brexit campaigned on an anti-globalization slogan, take back control. So it's a hot topic. My purpose in writing outside the box was to look at globalization in a historical perspective to help readers understand how it developed and where it's going. I should add that the book was written before COVID-19, but I think some of the loose talk about how the pandemic is bringing the end of globalization makes it all the more timely. Historically, you can find three phases of globalization. The first began in the 1820s or 30s uh, as we started to have industrial capitalism and technologies like ocean-going steamships and the telegraph. Uh, these things led to enormous growth in trade and investment. The trade flows were large, but back then they involved mostly bulk commodities, coffee, coal, copper, and so forth. And this stage of globalization was largely a European affair. Uh, at the peak in 1913, three quarters of the world's trade moved to, from, or within Europe. Most international lending and international investment was European too, so the first globalization really wasn't very global. We went through two world wars and a Great Depression in which uh, there was sort of a hiatus in globalization. And then a second globalization set in after the war, around 1948. This was really driven by international agreements to lower import tariffs. Uh, trade, foreign investment, international lending all grew very quickly during that period. But the second globalization was highly unbalanced. Basically, Western Europe, North America, and Japan imported oil and other commodities from poor countries and then sold manufactured goods to poor countries and to each other. Here's a number that will startle you. In 1959, Latin America, Asia, and Africa together accounted for less than 10% of the world's manufacturing. So understandably, the poor countries found that this version of globalization wasn't very appetizing. They wanted less of it. Uh, those of you of a certain age can recall when we talked about the North and the South, and globalization involved the North exploiting the South, or the core exploiting the periphery, and, and that's what was going on there. Starting in the late 1980s, globalization changed quite dramatically due to three technological developments. One was the rise of container shipping, which we just heard about. Another was the plummeting price of telecommunications. And the third was vast improvements in computing. These changes made it practical for a manufacturer or a retailer to have a component designed in one country, made in another, and sent elsewhere for assembly, creating a value chain. These value chains were really a defining characteristic of what I call a third globalization. Most of the containers arriving at West Coast ports in the 90s and the aughts held parts and components, not finished goods. After China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, world trade and manufactured goods rose 120% in just seven years, 
And during those years, of course, millions upon millions of manufacturing jobs disappeared in the United States and Canada and Western Europe and Japan. But while a trade deficit generates headlines, it just doesn't describe what's going on. My computer, and I'm sure yours, contains a German camera, semiconductors from Japan and Korea, circuit boards that were soldered in Malaysia, some preloaded software from India. Oh, and it was assembled in China by a Taiwanese company. It's not really meaningful to discuss the nationality of my computer or of many of the other goods we buy today because they're made no place in particular. When they set up these value chains in the 80s and the 90s, though, many companies focused entirely on production and transportation costs, and they ignored the possibility that orders might not arrive on time. They also ignored the possibility that the behavior of one of their foreign suppliers might hurt the brand. Well, both of those things have happened. In addition, changes in the maritime industry have increased the risks of global value chains. We've seen that ship lines seeking economies of scale have built ships of a size that's really almost unfathomable. The largest vessels in use today can carry more cargo than 11,000 full-size trucks. The idea was that bigger ships would have lower costs per container and encourage greater trade. But instead, the big ships have caused chaos. They take longer to load, longer to discharge than the smaller ships they replaced. They steam more slowly, and they can't speed up when they fall behind schedule. The result is that shipping takes longer today than it did two decades ago and is much less reliable. To deal with this, manufacturers and retailers have been keeping more inventory, and they've been establishing multiple suppliers in different places, raising their costs. So once these risks are taken into account, these value chains that everyone loved so much don't always seem like such bargains anymore. What we're seeing is that this phase of globalization is now waning. International trade and manufactured goods, foreign investment, and international finance have all been declining as a share of the world economy. The third globalization, dominated by trade in physical products that move in shipping containers, is giving way to a fourth in which trade in services and trade in ideas are going to matter much more. We're talking about products like software, for example, or the cybersecurity services we're going to hear about shortly. They can be traded internationally. If you're listening to this call live, you're missing Arsenal, a team with an American owner, a Spanish manager, and stars from Gabon in France, facing off against Leicester City with a Thai owner, a manager from Northern Ireland, and an English striker. Officially, that's English football. In economic terms, though, it's a mass of services from videography to advertising to athletic training that are being sold across borders in ways that are exceedingly difficult to measure. And I think that's where globalization is headed. Mark, thank you. All right, so this is a question answer period for Tim and Mark, and now Mark, I'll start out with you. Um, it seems um, that the container ship got a little bit too big. Um, they kept trying uh, to drive the economics of scale associated with larger and larger um, container ships, um, but it got too big, and now it's slower and, and less successful. 
should we expect um, to move back towards a smaller container ship that's more nimble uh, and more cost-effective? It reminds me a little bit about um, what happened in, in airplanes. You know, I think in the last couple of weeks, both Airbus and Boeing uh, announced the end to the 747 production and moving towards 727 and 787s, a smaller uh, a plane that was more efficient um, economically and fuel-wise and allowed for moving between uh, smaller airports instead of using these hub terminals. Um, do you think that the airplane story is consistent with the container ship in terms of the forward trend of, of shipping? A couple of points here. First, I'd be careful about the less successful part. Of shipping rates have gone up a great deal in the past couple of months. And the main reason for that is that the surviving companies have driven a lot of their competitors out of the market. The world market now is dominated by essentially four groups of companies because many smaller ship lines can't afford to build these giant ships. They couldn't keep pace, and either they uh, went bankrupt or they sold out. And now the market has been consolidated by people who have much more control than they did before. I think your analogy with uh, the giant airplanes is, is absolutely a correct one. Uh, that's being reflected some places in the uh, shipping industry. We're seeing companies that are not going to order these ships that can carry 11 or 12,000 containers. They're ordering ships that can carry eight or 9,000 containers. And the smaller ships which are still big by traditional standards, but they're a lot more versatile. They can go on uh, different ports, uh, different routes, and uh, many people in the shipping industry feel that these are actually going to be, over the long run, much more efficient than these supergiant ships. Tim, just to bring you in, um, what are you seeing right now in terms of relative shipping and port activity on the West Coast versus the East Coast. In the East Coast, we, we do most of our trading with Europe, on the West Coast, predominantly with the Chinese. Um, are we seeing dramatic differences between uh, port activity? Is Europe really in a severe recession while China is not? Uh, what, do you, what, do we, what are we seeing? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair characterization. I mean, we are seeing a few East Coast ports where uh, where volumes have started to come back um, and are starting to, to to grow from an import perspective. Um, and and typically we we just talk about the the loaded imports. And and so you know Savannah was up about sixteen percent in in. Uh, in the latest, you know, in September, um, and was up five percent in August. So that was, you know, had a first half that was down about uh, seven or eight percent. So, um, so from you know, from that perspective, it looks looks pretty good. Charleston's also back to flat, um, and 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 you know, New York's back to growth as well. So. Um, we are seeing um, signs of a European recovery. I don't think we we would see the signs for for another few months um, of of any effects from um, sort of a second wave of, of of closures there. I think that would take a, a little bit of time from a from a lead time perspective to to hit the the data. So that that's certainly um, a possibility. Um, I wouldn't say the East Coast port data is 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 looking as good uh, as as the West Coast. Uh, West Coast is, is certainly. Um, surging in a more um, sort of concerted way. And, and so it does seem like, you know, China has come back sort of faster. But uh, 
but no, Europe, Europe looks looks pretty good as well. Now, from an export um, perspective, um, we're, we're still seeing a lot of weakness across the board. Um, it, it doesn't vary too much um, by region. Um, Except for you know the Pacific North. Does that does that mean that the stimulus bill that we've done has allowed Americans to buy imported goods from all over the world, um, yep. but that the economies in Europe and Asia are still suffering? I mean, certainly all the the economies of the world are, are still under you know pretty significant. Um, Pressure. I mean, um, the stimulus helps in the short term, but it, the, those benefits are, are, are fading, especially here. Um, but uh, you know, it, it does seem likely that after the election, you know, some more stimulus will help. But uh, but I think just the reopening, the continued reopening, will, will help things to, to continue to, to recover from a, from a domestic standpoint. Um, and and you know, as we see, hopefully with with, uh, with risks you know falling um, as the, the Potential for a vaccine becomes more likely. We're kind of expecting the second quarter to be to be pretty widely available. Is 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 just the um, the rough assumption at this point, and uh, and I think that will drive um, uh, hopefully a, a global um, you know concerted recovery. And I think that's uh, that's fair to uh, uh, to expect. Question from Mark. I think you need to be uh, careful about this idea of the East Coast ports being tied to Europe. Uh, in fact, the East Coast ports compete pretty directly with the West Coast ports, and, and that's happening in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is that uh, ships can now come through the wider Panama Canal, larger ships, and so the, the question is, what's the total cost of getting your goods to market from China if you're sailing on to Savannah or Hampton Roads or, or New York uh, rather than to Long Beach and putting them on a train in either place. And so a certain amount of cargo is coming through the canal to the East Coast rather than going to the West Coast. Also in Asia, manufacturing is moving away from China toward points south, uh, particularly uh, India, uh, but also Bangladesh, uh, even a little bit of Pakistan now. and. Uh, cargo from those places may uh, make it to New York more quickly than to ports on the West Coast. So uh, the East Coast ports are actually much more tied into Asian trade now than they were a few years ago. Could you, Mark, expand a little bit on your comments about just-in-time inventory in the sense that it seemed like we were going into the golden age of just-in-time inventory where we could keep little to no parts, um, but we've had a number of experiences often caused by natural disasters where you become dependent um, on a certain number of parts where the whole system goes down. And has that learning meant that just-in-time inventory isn't a particularly good idea and that we should rely more on domestic suppliers? People have really moved away from just-in-time inventory because it has risks that, that they really didn't appreciate. We went through a period of probably 30 years in which uh, both for manufacturers and for retailers, the level of inventory relative to sales was going down month by month. That has reversed, at least until the pandemic scrambled things up a little bit. A part of that reversal, as Tim noted, is due to uh, just-in-time delivery, but a lot of it is really due to risk aversion. If you're not sure the goods are going to get delivered on time, you just have to keep more stuff in your warehouse. And so I think we're seeing that, and, and we're seeing companies being cautious. This I think low interest rates are helping too, sir. Yeah. Yeah. 
this isn't necessarily leading to, to uh, production coming to the United States per se. Uh, the way you deal with some of these risks is to have redundancy. What does redundancy mean? Well, one thing it means is that you move away from having a single factory somewhere that makes a critical component. You're getting things from multiple places. So if for whatever reason, uh, a factory goes down, a port goes down, a ship line goes down, uh, you have alternatives and you can still get your goods delivered on time. And companies are paying a whole lot more attention to that than they were a few years ago. Oh, that makes good sense. Tim, a question ask, for uh, you. Mark, can I go ask ahead. Mark one? Yeah, go ahead. I'm curious about you. About your view on, on, I mean, you've touched on it, of course, but uh, your view on, on this idea of reshoring to the U.S., you know, bringing manufacturing back because you know, the risks of globalization have risen so much from a variety of perspectives over the last few years. I mean, uh, it seems like, based on your comments, that that's that's impossible. <laughs> but I'm curious as to, you know, what do you think when you know when you read about you know articles that that say, you know, U.S. manufacturing is going to have a great recovery because we're going to bring all this manufacturing back. There's certainly some industries in which you're going to see some reshoring because the government wants it and is going to pay for it. And you see that in discussions about pharmaceuticals today, where there's pressure to have some kinds of, of pharmaceuticals made in their entirety in the United States. And that will happen and it will be supported by the U.S. government. Uh, in general, I think what we're moving toward globally is not so much reshoring as regionalization. And you're seeing that very much in the trade figures, that there's more or less a, a China-Northeast Asia nexus and a Germany-Europe nexus and an America's nexus. And so production goes on within these smaller geographic areas. And maybe you make the same product in two or three of these regions rather than having all the production in one place. And then if for whatever reason there's an interruption, you can use one region to service the market in the other region. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that the manufacturing will come back to the United States, but it may mean uh, increased manufacturing in Central America, Colombia, Mexico, the Caribbean, other places that are close to the United States. And in the longer run, uh, you do see that wage costs matter less and less in manufacturing. And after all, that's why this stuff went offshore in the first place, right? Production workers were cheaper in other countries. But with labor costs being relatively unimportant in very highly automated factories, that removes a big reason for uh, going offshore. Yeah, that's a great point. Question for Tim. Tim, uh, you mentioned that uh, spot prices for trucking is up substantially year on year. At a time of one of the biggest economic downturns that in our lives by far, uh, it's quite shocking. And, and the reason you said is because drivers are not um, are off the market. One of the reasons, of course, is that the government is paying people not to work. And so if they could choose not to drive and get nearly as much wages or more wages than they were driving, I could see why they would stay home. Um, but the typical driver is 55 years old, may have some comorbidities. Do you think that's what's leading these drivers to stay home? Is it health risks or is it the economics associated with the stimulus bill? Yeah, in, in such a cyclical industry like trucking, um, <clears throat> you do have a, a sort of marginal population of, of drivers who are near retirement age, um, and you know they tend to come into the market when spot rates go up, um, and and you know 
high prices are the cure for high prices, right? And then they come in and the rates eventually go down. Maybe they go re- enjoy their retirement. But uh, I think it's a lot harder to convince those drivers to, to come back uh, this year and, and certainly until there's you know, you know, a widely available va- vaccine that, that's going to continue to be the case. Um, <clears throat> but I do think there's a number of other um, you know, sort of important factors. Um, the, the number of net new entrants to the labor market each year um, has been been dropping for the, for the past few years, and that's going to continue into mid-decade. So, you know, we're having um, sort of elevated um, uh, retirements uh, just just demographically. Um, and next, as I mentioned, is that the drug and alcohol clearinghouse, which uh, you know we don't have a comparison for how many um, you know drivers failed drug tests last year, but uh, uh, but we know from this you know, monthly report that the uh, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration is now putting out that as of September, uh, there's been 40,000 positive tests. Um, and, you know, it does seem like... Out of how many drivers? Well, there's... If, if you include all CDLs, it's, it's probably in the 3 million range. Um, just like highway... That doesn't sound very much. That's a 1%. Well, if you just look at the highway market, the the you know the on highway you know medium and long haul kind of stuff, that that's only 1.3 million. Um, gotcha. So it, no, it's not huge, it's, um, but uh, but I do think uh, uh, it's it's a factor. Um, and and then you know construction is really good right now, and it's a it's a fairly substitutable profession, and um, and so I think that's that's pulling some uh, some drivers uh, as well. Okay, thank you. All right, we now move uh, to cybersecurity. Robert Kanaki joins us. He is the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign uh, Relations, and he has written the book, The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Rob, can you take it away? Thanks, Larry. All right, so we all know the election is nine days away. It's important to think about that as the day when the voting stops, not when the election is over. And the reason I say that is we're likely to see Russian interference in cyberspace ramp up in the next nine days and then continue probably through and beyond inauguration. Um, What we've seen so far has been pretty surprising to me and to other members of the cybersecurity community. And what I mean by that is that the Russians really don't seem to be bringing their A-game at interfering in this election. Uh, We call the Russians an advanced persistent threat uh, because that's how they operate. They are advanced in their capabilities and they are persistent in their goals. They will work to achieve them in a targeted fashion over a very long time. And yet so far what we've seen is the Russians scanning finding vulnerabilities in state election infrastructure. If they get in, great. If they don't, they move on. They haven't been targeted, meaning they haven't been focused on battleground or swing states. Uh, This is, to me, a little disconcerting, though to other people, they think it's a a positive sign. Um, So there's a couple possibilities here to explain that. Uh, The most optimistic is that they've been deterred, uh, that they recognize that interfering in this election could bring dire consequences if Joe Biden is elected, and Vice President Biden has made comments to that effect. There will be hell to pay if they try and interfere and he still gets elected, so they may have backed down. It's also possible they're just simply less interested in the outcome of this election than they were in 2016. There was a lot of animus between Vladimir Putin 
and Hillary Clinton that may not be present today. Uh, the more dire possibilities, I think there are two. Uh, one is that we're not seeing their real efforts, that they're allowing themselves to get caught uh, doing this scan and attempt to penetrate and give up uh, modality uh, to hide their real activities that we can't even see and haven't even begun to attack. Uh, the other possibility here uh, is that they're not really focused on the election and they're really going to be focused on what happens afterwards, what comes next, whether they can use a close election to drive the wedge further between most Americans using online activity. Uh, and that I think we've already seen a lot of signs of. Many of you have probably seen uh, news reports and respectable uh, publications, op-eds, talking about the likelihood of civil war or the possibility of civil war in the United States following the election. Uh, that's actually the direct product of Russian trolls online seeding that idea for the last year. So we've already fallen for it if you're reading in, say, The New Republic or The Atlantic or on Fox News about the likelihood of civil war if the election is closed. Uh, that's the Russians playing. So that may be their endgame. I think it's safe to say that they've always been interested in seeing Donald Trump elected, but re their real goal is disruption and divisiveness in the United States. If they can weaken us, they will have a freer hand abroad. And that's what they're really about. So with that dire note, let me move on quickly uh, to what I think the good news is. And, and at a broad level, I said I talk about the banks because the good news is that the banks have really proven that cybersecurity is a solvable problem, that it is fundamentally economic in nature. If you get the incentives right, you can make the technology work. Some very large banks are simply able to fight day in and day out against the most aggressive, the most persistent actors that will never give up. And they're able to do this uh, because they're modernizing their computing, because they're investing in their cybersecurity hygiene, and because they develop the capability to fight and find their adversaries inside their own networks once they've gotten through their perimeters. And so this is something that we can replicate uh, in other sectors and uh, in other banks that haven't adopted this model. Uh, very briefly, with that uh, said, I think post-election, uh, whatever the outcome is, on the cybersecurity front, we're not likely to see rapid departures if there's a Biden administration because we didn't see rapid departures from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. So more likely than a big shift in direction, we're going to see trying to build on the fact that cybersecurity is doable, and we'll see that in a couple ways. Uh, one, we're probably not going to see the Biden administration uh, abandon the efforts to replace Chinese electronic goods like Huawei in our critical infrastructure, but build on those efforts in a, a stronger fashion, in fact. Um, I would also anticipate that we're going to see stimulus dollars uh, be used to invest in modernization of critical infrastructure uh, with the goal of making it secure against cyber threats, particularly in the gas pipeline, uh, in the electric industry, uh, and in state and local government. Uh, and then finally, I think we should expect a willingness, uh, higher willingness to regulate for cybersecurity uh, that we haven't seen in this administration. 
As I said, cybersecurity is fundamentally an economic problem. So getting those incentives right through regulation to cause investment and the right kind of investment and the right kind of tools and procedures and processes uh, will likely be the goal. Let me, uh, let me stop there. Thanks, Rob. Okay, so we're going to open Q&A up for Rob. Um, let's start with the election. You highlighted that the real uh, objective is not a Biden or a Trump victory, but instead divisiveness uh, and internal civil war to allow the Russians to, to do what they want to do with in their own places. Um, how successful have they been in trolling for divisiveness? Is that, is that effective? Um, you know, one of the great questions is how much polarization is there now? And in academic circles, um, it's disputed that th there is a lot of polarization. Sure, there's a lot of noise on both sides, but the center hasn't really moved. Um, does the trolls just really engage those who are, are listening most, uh, but the rest of the country is, is not particularly polarized or affected by these trolls? So, I mean, I think it's really the places that they're trolling, it really comes down to the rate and the degree to which people are engaged on those platforms in political discussions. And it's a fairly small portion of the users of Facebook that are really focused uh, on these issues. Now, that said, they may be a very dangerous element on both the left and the right. And so we've seen, we've been able to watch uh, Russian trolls engage in things like creating fears of shortages in ammunition cause actual shortages uh, in ammunition. The actual buying uh, up of both weapons and of bullets uh, over the last year has been extraordinary, and that's been driven uh, by engaging on these platforms. So I, I think they, the, they really have a good understanding of how to use these platforms to manipulate uh, American sentiment. They may not need to get a majority or more than a majority of Americans to feel these ways in order for us to see some kind of disruption and some kind of violence post-election. Do I think the center will hold? Yes, I believe in that as a patriotic American, uh, but are we in for a bumping ride and are they gonna exas exacerbate it? Absolutely. What about um, hacking of the election returns. Do you think that foreign governments have an ability or is, it, is stuff decentralized enough with paper ballots behind, you know, paper receipts? Are, are voting machines hackable and in danger or is this something that is both not particularly likely and not something of interest to these foreign powers? So, I mean, I, I will say this. I think we're going to have the most secure election uh, that we have ever had in many ways. I think there's so much focus uh, on the security of the election, and we've done some very good things, or I should say most states and most precincts have done some very good things. We've gone back to paper ballots, uh, moving away uh, from fully electronic voting. Uh, any electronic system, I believe at this point, is going to have a paper backup at a minimum, but most people are going to be filling something out uh, either with a pen or with a pencil that can be scanned. And so we're going to be able to ultimately unfold and uh, be able to do a count. The, the issues are, can they manipulate that infrastructure, get into states uh, 
and make it difficult to do the count or make uh, false information introduced uh, into those counts that will ultimately, I think, be found out to be false, but cause some rumors, cause some speculation, cause some reversal. Yes, I, I think we can do that. One of the things that we've seen is that you know, the Russians uh, uh, have a, a botnet called TrickBot, uh, which is all over the place, including in state governments. Uh, and it can be used to simply freeze up computers or give access to those computers. And we've seen both Cyber Command and Microsoft uh, try and take down that uh, in the last two weeks. Uh, because they, they realize that that kind of system, that kind of access could, if not uh, cause changes in the vote count, make it very difficult or impossible to carry out uh, a vote count uh, electronically using those systems. All right, I want to change the subject to banks. Um, as I mentioned to you in the pregame, Rob, um, our audience is heavily weighted towards people who either currently work at banks or have worked at banks and are concerned about protections of the financial industry in many regards. Um, so you mentioned that the banks are doing an excellent job of protecting themselves. And I think, you know, it depends very much so on the activities of Americans and how they interrelate with the banking system. Today, we use you know, these combinations of, um, you know, you log on to Citibank, and then Citibank sends you a text message, and then you take that text message, and you um, put that, those series of numbers into the computer, and then you can continue to, to do stuff. Um, that's this dual task of, of using two different types of passwords, one written and then something that's forwarded to us as a protection. Um, why does having these two methods significantly reduce the risk of problems, and how far are we away from the bad guys figuring out how to engage with that double protection to, to really make uh, trouble? Oh, I mean, so, you know, what you're focusing on here, and I think this is a, a great example um, of how regulation has worked successfully within within the financial institution. There are specific requirements for the banks for what technologies they need to deploy and how they need to deploy them, and there are audits and reports. But really what keeps the banks secure is they're incentivized to invest in security at appropriate levels because if they lose your money to cyber fraudsters, they're responsible, not you, right? Uh -huh. And the banks advertise that fact, but it's, it's required under federal regulation. And so what that's meant is that the banks have said, okay, we of our own volition are going to start introducing multi-factor authentication, right? That password and then PIN combination that you'll get texted or get off an app. Uh, depending on what you're trying to do or where you're trying to log in from. And that's really been motivated by the fact that the banks have said, hey, we're not going to ask you to sign up for this voluntarily. We're not going to let you lose, you lose your money, which becomes our problem. And so what you're talking about here is essentially the, the issue of the banks having to make a judgment about what level of security is necessary and what level of security will be too inconvenient that consumers will go to other banks that don't have those kinds of requirements on them? And so you know, the question on the two factors of authentication now, how long until the attackers can beat them? Well, I can guarantee you that those Russian advanced actors, if they want to get into your bank account, they're going to be able to do it. 
they're going to compromise your phone. They're going to be able to intercept that text message. They're going to compromise the SMS system that delivers it. They're going to be able to read those digits off that app on your phone. But it's not worth it to them to get into your bank account, or at least not worth it to them to get into my bank account. And so it's really just this question of how fast does that level of advanced capability move down to those smaller criminal groups. Within the next couple of years, we're going to be moving from SMS messages to apps to hardware keys, likely involving biometrics, all with an effort to make your accounts more secure, but also make it easier and faster for you to access them and only you access them. So in that, I'll call it a war between the criminal and technology to protect our passwords and biometric uh, information, um, who's going to win that war? Is, is it easier to break it or is it easier to make it more difficult to encrypt information away from the criminals? So, you know, the, the view has always been in cybersecurity that, that the offense has the advantage, right? That, that defense is a, a losing game, right? When the chief information security officers are feeling sorry for themselves, uh, you know, these large banks, they say, I have to be right 100% of the time, all the time, across 400,000 systems. The attackers, they can be wrong all the time. They've just got to break into a single one and I lose my job, right? And that's just completely the wrong way to think about cybersecurity today, right? The reality is what most of the banks have done, they've, they've invested a lot in technology, but they've changed their mindset. And they borrowed this very simple concept from the U.S. military called the kill chain. And it's the idea that the attacker has to carry out between 7 and 22 different steps all successfully without getting detected and stopped. And if they get stopped and detected at any one of those stages, they lose and the defender wins. And so when you start thinking about it that way and you start architecting your system to say, hey, you know, I can be wrong at 21 stages as long as at the 22nd, I don't let that money move to that offshore account. I win, they lose. I've made them waste months of their, of their lives and their time going after me. That's a whole different mindset, and it's taken over the cybersecurity industry in a very positive way. Uh, that is good news. Um, another topic you had related to important infrastructure, uh, particularly as you think about the grid, um, gas, do you think of how safe, if you were a foreign power, where you can't beat us with a Navy or ballistic missiles. Our weaknesses are more internal here as it relates to cyber attacks. Um, if you are the Iranians, for example, would you be investing in, in cyber warfare in lieu of other means? And to what extent, um, it sounds to me like the banks are in good shape, but I'm not sure our key infrastructure is as, as good a shape. What should we be doing to protect ourselves from foreign powers and their desire to cause havoc here? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is one of the major worries that I have about the elections, right? That we may have secured the voting infrastructure. I think we've done a pretty good job on that. Uh, but we know from the Director of National Intelligence that the Russians uh, have penetrated our electric sector and have the ability to cause uh, at least temporary and at least localized power disruptions. What if they choose to do that in certain key areas or certain key counties? 
on election day. What does that mean if the traffic lights aren't working because there's no power to them and you can't get to vote because your city's in gridlock? So there's a very real concern here. Um, we know the Russians have that ability. We know the Chinese have that ability with natural gas. Uh, we know that the Iranians uh, are building that kind of capability and that kind of access. So it, it's, a, it's a major concern. I mean, I think the real answer is, uh, one, we need to much more tightly regulate many of these other critical infrastructures. We need to begin regulating uh, a lot of our information technology. And then I think the really hard part of this um, is we've really got to rethink our supply chains, uh, that idea of regionalization uh, that Mark mentioned in, in the last talk is absolutely critical. Uh, we're starting to realize that we cannot ask the Chinese to build us multi-hundred million dollar power transformers in China and bring them over here and install them and not expect that they're not going to be riddled with backdoors, not going to have logic bombs and Trojans installed in them for the Chinese to be able to access them or take them down if we ever get in a shooting war. And so that's the, the hardest piece for, the piece for critical infrastructure is how do you get the electronics components of our critical infrastructure uh, built and serviced in a way where the supply chain does not run through China? The Trump administration has been most vocal about the Huawei network in, uh, infrastructure. They've tried to make the arguments to many of our allies that this is a, a huge mistake. Um, why do some allies believe it more than others, and why do some uh, claim to have deaf ears to these sort of arguments? And do you agree with the Trump administration on the Huawei risk? Oh, I, I think I think the Trump is only answer that first. I think the Trump administration is absolutely right that Huawei is a risk that it should not be included, nor should ZTE in the build-out of our 5G networks uh, or that of our allies. I also think that ultimately, through a lot of bullying and cajoling and kind of in a very ham-fisted manner, they've convinced most of our allies uh, that they can't have Huawei uh, in their networks. Their clean networks program has actually been pretty successful at making that argument. Uh, the problem is, you know, Huawei and 5G is just one set of technology, and we are dependent on Chinese manufacturing uh, of electronics uh, for almost everything that goes into our uh, critical infrastructure. And so we've got to come up with a, a, a regional approach uh, with trusted allies and partners to, you know, essentially developing separate supply chains uh, that do not run through China for these goods and create the incentives uh, for countries to cooperate with us in that. And when the, um, if the Russians or Chinese do, do attack us using cyber, um, what do you think the right response is? Do you think we should make a symmetrical response, just to use John Lewis Gaddis's, uh words, or should we be asymmetric and go after them in other ways away from cyber? So I think in, words, in the case of... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a tough issue because I think uh, on, at the most basic level, we can't, if the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians interfere in our elections, we can't interfere in theirs. They don't really have them, right? Right. There's, there's no exactly. way that we can swing the votes uh, from Vladimir Putin to another candidate. You know, they're, right, they're but we could turn off electricity in Shanghai. I don't know if, the, you know, is, is that something we want exactly. to do? or. So, so, I mean, I think that that's the issue of how do you create escalation dominance? How do we get on top of this cycle with Russia 
uh, and convince them that they need to stop interfering in our elections? And I, I think the answer is there are other things that we can interfere with. Um, the kind of instability that they want to cause uh, in our society uh, with social media manipulation, we can cause instability in their society uh, with the same tools. Uh, we can obviously cause blackouts. We have those capabilities. I'd like to see uh, more focus on diplomatic tools and bringing the international community together to sanction Russia for this kind of activity. Uh, I think that that is probably one of the best answers. Okay. All right. With that, um, we're now going to pivot to our next segment of the show. Uh, I want to invite Mitch Feynman to introduce Wendy and Howard Givner. Uh, Mitch, why don't you go ahead with your opening remarks? Thanks, Larry. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the topic of business and technology disruption accelerated by COVID, which was the theme of last week's What Happens Next, covering topics such as travel, sports, and religious services, and that we'll be continuing with our last speakers today. Wendy Ferber begins with how companies with a remote workforce will need to find new ways to maintain their corporate culture and bonds between employees. Howard Givner will be discussing how the trend towards virtual conferences will grow as the tools and technology improve. Businesses will love the increased efficiency of not losing multiple days of work and not paying for hotels and flights to Las Vegas and other popular convention cities. While these topics are somewhat related, What's also interesting to me is the different origins you will hear about. In the first case, COVID badly hurt Wendy's existing business, and she had to, using a favorite Silicon Valley term, pivot. She accomplished this change by doing something every company claims to do, but it doesn't actually do very often in reality. That is talking in depth to lots of customers about what they need and changing circumstances. In the case of Howard's virtual conference business, it was a long existing enterprise that has now benefited from the sudden and dramatic behavioral change resulting from COVID, accelerating perhaps a couple of years, a trend that was already happening, albeit somewhat slowly before the pandemic. But what I think is most interesting and that affects most of us about this topic is how work changes post pandemic. We've talked about work from home for a long time. But in all honesty, it was never really accepted or encouraged. Even at a technology startup, the environment where I've worked recently and which you would think most receptive to employee flexibility, I recall pre-COVID colleagues speaking dubiously about a coworker who hardly ever came to the office, even though he was well-liked and good at his job. Personally, I hope any stigma around working from home goes away now that we've all been forced to do it and learned it may be good for productivity, mental health, and even the environment without everyone commuting. Others will likely remain skeptical. In any case, I'm excited to hear from our last two speakers about how to take advantage of our new normal with creativity, as well as tools and processes beyond Zoom, which is probably only the beginning. And now let's hear from Wendy Ferber. Thanks, Mitch. So virtual experiences have risen from the ashes of COVID. I speak from personal experience. When our business came to a halt in March at our 23-year-old promotional products company, understandably, our corporate clients greatly reduced spending on swag as soon as the quarantine started. So we needed another way to connect with clients. That led us to launch Connectorship 
a virtual game experience designed for companies to engage with colleagues and clients, and Connector Central, a website with a variety of virtual events for companies to book for virtual holiday parties, conferences, retreats, and other events that normally would take place in person. As Mitch mentioned, I have spoken with over 80 corporate clients since July, and based on these discussions, we are seeing that companies are looking for ways to connect with their remote employees, making virtual events the hot new thing. Since COVID, almost all companies have remote workforces, and they're looking for ways to maintain corporate culture. Before COVID, we cared about corporate culture to increase employee retention, recruit better talent, improve brand reputation, and increase productivity. Companies still need to maintain corporate culture, but now they also need, to, need it to maintain basic human connections. Before COVID, companies were offering all sorts of in-person perks like free meals, free beer, napping pots, etc. When Google opened a new office in Washington in 2009, it included amenities like a climbing wall, a gym, and a soda fountain. These perks helped companies compete for and retain employees. Post-COVID, companies still need to compete for talent, but now employees are mostly working remotely from all over the country and the world. Without these in-person perks, companies need to change how they engage their remote workforces to provide the same collegiality and camaraderie. The interesting thing is that post-COVID, location is no longer a barrier. Everyone can hop on Zoom to work together or socialize. Most people have certainly seen this happening with families and friends. The same goes for companies. While Zoom happy hours were the exciting virtual event at the beginning of COVID, like in-person perks, the expectations for engaging, interesting, and fun online events has increased. Virtual events provide interaction among colleagues that normally would have taken place in office hallways, at water coolers, and lunchrooms. Virtual events run the gamut. How about a virtual cooking competition like the Chopped television show on the Food Network? Divide your employees into teams and see who wins. And if competition is not your thing, host a mixology event where you learn how to make awesome cocktails or mocktails sprinkled in with trivia and interactive polls and a lot of fun conversation among your teammates. Or a wine tasting with a selection of wines delivered to your door. These virtual events provide the missing employee engagement while everyone is working remotely. Here's a great example. So one of our clients is doing 19 sessions of virtual games and activities to be played tournament style, giving remote employees a regular time to connect, to enjoy each other's company and work together and compete. They're doing an NCAA-type bracket of games with double elimination and winners and losers brackets. I can't even keep track. Culminating in two playoffs, the spirit and team bonding has been incredible. We had another client looking for some fun entertainment to bring their team together and host a meeting afterwards, so they hired our virtual magician and mentalist. We are talking currently to a company that has offices all over the world and is growing quickly. Before COVID, they prided themselves on working hard and playing even harder. This company relied on weekly events to build corporate culture. Now they're looking to us to provide them with a whole menu of virtual events to replace their in-person events. 
also, as they expand all over the world, it has become harder and harder to have everyone together. These virtual events will provide them valuable employee engagement. And for many vendors with in-person events, virtual offerings have become a necessity to stay in business and thrive. I'm currently working with seven event vendors who only did live events before COVID, and now they've successfully pivoted to virtual events, providing the same benefits virtually that they would have provided in person. So you may be wondering, is this only a six to 12 month phenomenon? Will the need for virtual events disappear as soon as the COVID-19 vaccine has been released? The answer is no. The major tech companies that are always driving the innovation curve are announcing that they will let people work from home forever, including Facebook and Twitter and Shopify and Slack. There are so many reasons why many companies won't have their employees return to the office full-time or at all. First, we have learned from this pandemic that many businesses can run efficiently and just as effectively remotely. Technology has ensured that. Companies are realizing that they can save money on commercial real estate and other in-office expenses and improve people's lives by allowing them to work remotely, eliminating long and expensive commutes. Second, without commuting distance restrictions, companies can recruit the best talent from all over the country and world. Third, employees can move to lower cost regions of the country to increase their quality of living and still work for their companies. Companies are discovering that virtual teams combined with a short commute upstairs when they are over are the perfect antidote to a remote world. Thanks so much, Wendy. You're welcome. All right. Before we get to questions, we're going to combine Wendy and Howard together. Uh, our next speaker is Howard Givner. Howard is the founder of Event Leadership Institute, and he's also the former CEO of North America for Global Events Group. Howard, take it away. Thanks, Larry. Um, so COVID-19 has, has utterly decimated the live events industry, and, and I guess uh, in contrast to the stuff Wendy was talking about, I'll focus on conferences and trade shows and other larger events, but it basically drove most, if not all, events into virtual. What it, what it amounted to is compressing what would have been five to ten years of market disruption into six months. We're looking at a $1.1 trillion industry that literally did a full stop in March, and the only option was to funnel all of these events, in, unless they cancel them, onto a virtual platform. And I'm not talking about Zoom. I'm talking about robust platforms that have networking, uh, expo floors, animation, and lots of different features. What this resulted in is a mad scramble within the event industry to pivot. And that's been manifested in two ways. The first way is every tech vendor that existed out there, from event apps to slide sharing platforms, they all pivoted to open up virtual event platforms. In addition, uh, a lot of money has been raised by startups. Uh, as an example, the biggest one, a company called Hopin, which has only been around for about a year, is about to raise another round at what's reported to be a $2 billion valuation, whereas only in June, their last round was about, uh, at about a $350 million valuation. The second scramble for everybody to pivot is the industry's event and meeting and conference planners had to learn virtual. So we're looking at a massive reskilling effort. But this technology is not new. It's been around for, for actually a while, for about 10 years. 
Um, but nobody really paid that much attention to it. It was sort of like a, an occasional dalliance for, for some tech companies. So we, as an example, our organization, the Event Leadership Institute, we, we created a new course to certify people in virtual event and meeting management. And we, we've certified about 2,000 people since, since April. To give you an idea of the scale, when our organization runs uh, a course, we typically get about 25 professionals in a cohort. Each time we run this course on virtual events, we get 500. So it's a 20-fold increase. The second point I want to talk about is that virtual events offer very distinct benefits and challenges, but they are absolutely here to stay regardless of whether and when in-person events return in force. So some of the benefits, number one, much shorter lead time in planning. You don't need six months, 12 months, two years, whatever, to reserve a venue or a convention center. Number two, they're cheaper to produce, they're cheaper to attend, and they're cheaper to exhibit at. In addition to not having to rent the venue and pay for catering and everything else, attendees don't have to pay for travel, exhibitors don't have to pay to ship their goods. You get much, much better data. The fourth uh, and often overlooked benefit of virtual events is you get very high-level speakers because it, they're not having to commit to get on a plane and travel to your conference or event. And, and block out a day, two days, three days. Now they only have to block out about an hour. And then finally, probably most importantly, as Larry mentioned earlier, for this event that we're on right now, this is not necessarily a virtual event, but it's a good facsimile of what we're talking about. You have the opportunity to tremendously broaden the attendee base, often 10 times what you might get on an in-person event. And, and marketers are smart to use those that, that bigger pool of people to put into the top of the funnel for their organization and eventually sell to them more expensive products down the line. The main challenge, I would say, is revenue, right? So I'm not talking about internal events like a training event or a sales meeting, external events that rely on making money. Um, the first is attendee revenue. So while some conferences and organizations are keeping the price the same, the majority are cutting them dramatically. Uh, sometimes down to 90% off of their uh, in-person attendee rate, or in many cases free. And an often bigger challenge is uh, events that are funded in part by exhibitors or sponsors, exhibitors are complaining across the board that they are not getting the traffic and the ROI from these virtual booths. Uh, and I, I think what we're going to see is a lot of them are going to pull out and do their own events if that's not fixed because the cost to create that is relatively low. Um, I think their virtual events are definitely here to stay um, if for, for no other reason than you're going to need a virtual backup in case of a shutdown, right? So the pandemic can kind of spike randomly with no notice. So anyone who plans a fully in-person event at a minimum is going to need a virtual backup. But I think what we're more likely to see when and if in-person events return is that most of them are going to be hybrid. They've seen how they can produce on virtual. They're not going to go back. It's, it's just another opportunity for them to reach their audience. It's, it's, it's important to realize that this is additive and not replacement. So think about it as another arrow in marketers' quivers in terms of achieving their goals. Some examples of that, uh, for trade shows, the Consumer Electronics Show in January, one of the biggest ones, that's virtual. Look at festivals, South by Southwest in March, that's virtual. Uh, corporate, and Wendy mentioned a lot of these tech companies are telling their employees work from home forever. Those are also the ones that are saying that they're going to pivot all of their events to virtual. Microsoft was one of the first. They announced that all their events uh, in 2021 through June would go to virtual, and that was in April. 
And I think what we're going to see is a lot of these companies are going to start extending that. The third and final point is that if 2020 was about functionality and getting everybody from an in-person event to a virtual event, just this kind of understanding how do we make it work and how do we migrate it, 2021 and beyond is going to be about refining the experience. I think we're going to see dramatically improved UX, meaning a user experience and a user interface. I think they're going to look to video games for better inspiration and, and how to make a really dynamic and engaging environment. I think we're going to see content created and delivered in better and more dynamic ways. I think they're going to look to TV news shows for higher production values. And I think also event organizers are going to find creative ways to solve the revenue challenges. So I, I have to say we're probably only in the early stages of virtual events, but I would definitely expect uh, this field to continue. Um, and in, in terms of when and if in-person events will return, I just want to point out that, that a vaccine is by no means going to be a silver bullet. Uh, I think our first speaker talked about that. Uh, you know, in order to get approval by the FDA, it only requires 50% efficacy, and a lot of people may not take it. I think what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of what is called hygiene theater, a lot of uh, cleaning of surfaces and things like that that may, may make attendees feel better but really don't have a huge impact on safety, whereas ventilation is a much, much bigger issue. Um, if we want to look to when this stuff is going to kick in, when live and in-person events are going to return, look to when business travel starts to kick back up. And what you're seeing from uh, CEOs of those companies is two, three, sometimes four years to get to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, In-person events that are local are going to start to take, um, uh, take place first. Then you'll deal with regional. Last is going to be international. If you look like even right now, a lot of Europe now, they're back in lockdown. So I think that's kind of what we're going to see is smaller events locally then regionally then internationally, but by no means is any of this going to put virtual back into the box. Thanks, Howard. All right, so... Um Mitch, jump in when you want as well, and any, any other speakers. Let me start with a question for, uh, for Howard. Howard, you mentioned that the, um, at these live events, at the, excuse me, at these virtual events, that some of the exhibitors are not happy with the traffic going through their events. I mean, in reality, they pay for it. They're the ones who so desire these events to be successful. Why is traffic not up to speed, and to what extent... Um, why do we have these trade shows to begin with? What are they trying to, what are their objectives? Um, are they trying to find people who are seemingly uninterested in a subject, kind of wander by, enter their thing, and then be shocked and surprised, and then be more interested in learning about their product, and they're not doing that virtually? Or is there something about the in-person relationships that develop uh, that goes on in a, in a live experience? What, what, and I guess to go back to the point, why do we have these trade shows to begin with, and how can virtual create a similar experience that is as effective? So in answer your question, a lot of people were wondering why we have these events. And I, I think the question is really what's the ROI for participating in them? Uh, as to why they're hosted, the most common reason is because they make money. In, in many cases, they're put on by associations. And these are often the biggest uh, source of revenue for those organizations. Then there are also for-profit events that are simply designed to make money. In terms of why an exhibitor would take out a booth and 
you know, pay for the booth build out and shipping their merchandise and having sales team, you know, take a few days out of the office. Presumably, it's to raise awareness for their product and to um, engage with customers on a more direct basis. But before COVID hit, this was already a conversation that was taking place because the trade show hosts were sort of looking at the exhibitors as basically walking ATMs, and they really didn't put nearly as much effort into making sure that they got the value they needed out of those shows. Um, so I, I think the reason that it's not clicking as much in virtual is that they're and, – and I'm talking about a, uh, virtual platforms where you click on um, an icon in a virtual lobby, and it says Expo Floor, and you go in there, and it's a very interactive uh, environment. You could click on different booth vendors, and you can chat in video real-time with that exhibitor's representative. So it's a very dynamic interface. But the problem is you, when you're at a live trade show, there's this – visceral sense of excitement and stimulation that you get from walking the show floor. That doesn't necessarily translate into business for all the exhibitors, but it sort of feels like they need to be there. They found it hard to kind of drive virtual attendees to spend time in those virtual booths. The interaction is there, the technology is there, um, the user interface is there. Just as an attendee, it's just not this dramatically compelling. So let me do a comparison of an industry like trade show versus like a consumer trade show. Because I think a number of us have, have gone to consumer trade shows for sure. So let me use like the auto show as an example. So um, you know, currently I, I've gone, I don't know, maybe for the last three of the last five auto shows. Um, the place is packed. I went to, to the Javits Center. It's full of people. Everyone's kind of walking around very interested in, in what they have to to, to show, um, it seems to be you know brand promotion. It seems to be um, specific product promotion. People go there when they think they're going to buy a car. Others just go there when they're just kind of, kind of interested. Um, and there's a certain level of excitement. Uh, the thought that I would be perusing uh, Ford or General Motors websites uh, as an alternative seems you know, inconceivable to me. Um, so starting with the consumer show, how how effective can it be? Uh, on a virtual basis relative to the level of excitement that occurs in a, in a bona fide consumer show? Well, in an example like you gave, it's, it's going to take some time to, to come close to replicating. It's not going to replicate it. Um, and using that auto show as an example of what you asked earlier, the host and the owner of the New York Auto Show is the New York Auto Dealers Association. They, they were a client of my agencies for a number of years. And that was basically all the tri-state area, you know, car dealerships were the ones who were members and technically owners of that association, which put on the show. So it's designed to get people excited about the new car models that are coming out and, and get people thinking about going into a dealership to buy a car. I think it's going, to be, it's going to be hardest to replicate the shows that have physical products. So CES, you know, a lot of that's about the oohs and ahs of the latest, you know, yeah. um, TV screens, et cetera. Um, and, and the car shows are going to have a harder time pivoting and transitioning online. That being said, if you have a lot of people that are simply not going to I – mean, that, that show drew over a million consumers. You're not going to be able to replicate that, that experience, but you don't want to – just let it disappear. So they're going to have to come up with a lot of sort of almost virtual reality um, things that, that replace that. Um, but there are a lot of shows that were not, that did not have physical products. I mean, you think about 
finance and insurance. You know, there's, there's nothing really that you touch and feel. You don't sit in an insurance product and, and feel and smell the leather. So some you know, industries are going to have an easier time migrating to virtual than others. Well, that goes just, uh, I'll call it an idea conference, which you would think ideas are perfect for um, the Zoom. But it reminds me a little bit, um, I've never um, gone to the Milken Institute events in Beverly Hills that occurs every year. Um, but one of my business partners does. And what he says to me is, you know, it's incredible there. You can watch all the shows online if you want. I said, well, did you sit on anything? He said, well, I, I mostly use my time there um, to interact with other people, um, make new business contacts and continue existing ones. Are these trade shows really just social events um, where people can meet and either meet new people or cultivate existing relationships? And to what extent are they just a backdrop to what's going on? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, if you look at the TED Talk model, you could see the talks for free online, but you pay to go there and be able to mingle and, and you know, talk and interact with the high-level quality of the, of the attendees. Um, in a lot of cases, the reason that the content is there is in order for the attendees to be able to get the attendance fees reimbursed by their employer. Um, if they're not, if it's just a boondoggle, then, you know, they, their company won't pay for it. Not to say that the content's not worthwhile, but I think it's that serendipitous interaction of people that is probably hardest to to visualize migrating to virtual, but it's, it's definitely a doable thing. I mean, a lot of money has been going into this the networking um, and the serendipitous meeting aspect of, 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 um, of virtual. And in some ways, it's actually better because you, when you sign up for to attend a virtual conference online, you can indicate a lot of preferences of who you want to meet and the kind of people that you want to meet and talk to. And it's much, much easier to match those people with facilitated one-on-one -on -one or small group interactions. Um, so I, I don't think the in-person conference is, is going to stop, but you're right in the sense that a lot of the value is not in the session rooms. It's, it's in the, you know, the foyer and in those, those events mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the evenings as well. Mitch, you have a question for Wendy? Yeah. Um, so, Wendy, I was curious, um, how much do these companies that you're working with and you've talked to know yet or are sophisticated about where budgets are coming from? I mean, currently they're saving money um, with some of what's going on with the pandemic, but what about on an ongoing basis? I mean, for example, you talked about the Silicon Valley companies are some of the first ones to say, you know, don't ever come back to work. And what some of these companies are doing that I've read about is saying, you know, we'll give you, you know, $20,000 and you get to move to another city where the cost of living is cheaper than San Francisco, where most tech companies are, but we're going to cut your salary by 10%. Um, yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of shifting around. Um, so yeah, go ahead, Wendy. Yeah, no, good question. Um, you know, from the companies that I've spoken to, and I'm not talking to the largest Silicon Valley ones that are really very tech forward and ahead of the curve, um, they, they actually 
are not really sure. They're like kind of taken off guard and they're all of a sudden they're scrambling to try to figure out how to do it. I kind of think it talks about like what Howard was saying about 2020's functionality, how to make it work. And so a lot of them are telling me that, you know, they can't order promotional products, they're not doing anything live, but somehow they're going to find money for virtual events. So I think they're just doing it by the seat of their pants now, and maybe in 2021 we'll start to see more of a budget for it. You know, if I could just uh, tack on to what Wendy said, I think another point that um, she's probably seeing is a lot of these organizations are struggling with onboarding new employees. And, you know, how do you do that when, when the employees aren't even able to visit the office? So, you know, it, it's not just about, you know, building uh, morale and culture among existing employees. You know, people forget how hard it is to join a company when you can't set foot in the office and physically meet everybody. So I think that's going to be a big part of it as well. Yeah, and and you know what? And everybody's kind of scrambling to find the um, these virtual events. And the interesting thing to me is that there's going to be so much creativity, kind of like what Howard's talking about in 2021, refining the experience, that we're going to start to see some really interesting ideas to help onboard employees, you know, keep employees, you know, for retreats and conferences. Um, we'll start to see a lot of innovation with them. You know how we um, we seem to be getting a little bit of Zoom fatigue, I've heard. Um, and there, there's something very special about face-to-face and in-person that's different. Um, to what extent do you think, and maybe my question is directed to, for Wendy on this one, um, you know, we're going to try to create that water cooler experience using um, in-person, but it seems very artificial in many ways. You know, we can we can have these drinks, you know, on Zoom, the mixology and wine tasting ones you suggested, but it's somehow different than actually being at the bar. Um, why, first of all, do, do, will it work the first couple of times and then sort of not be that effective? What is, it, what is so special about in-person experiences that the virtual experience can't achieve? Well, I mean, I, I think in person people love to see each other. It's just part of human nature. And I do agree that there's Zoom fatigue, but if something's done um, interactively where you really enjoy speaking to somebody and you have a topic or there's some sort of structure to it, I think people forget about the Zoom fatigue because you're getting that interaction that you that you that you're longing for that you don't get in person. Um, so if the events are done correctly and you have an experience where you're really interacting, like I mentioned that company that's doing um, 19 sessions, they're in there talking and laughing and joking with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's um, not passive, it's, you know, interactive. And I think that's what you get in the person. The Zoom or the webinar thing where you're just sitting and listening, that can't replace in person. I'll add to that that I think Zoom fatigue is, is kind of bullshit because I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the experience. You look at how people will spend hours and days playing interactive multiplayer video games, uh, and, and it's not the, it's not a, the screen that's the barrier. You know, they're, they're talking to people through headsets, and you can't pull them out of the room. So, you know, to Wendy's point, I think if experience is it, – it's not just the technology. It's obviously the heavy lifting is in how you implement it to make it an engaging experience. 
So, Wendy, where do um, how do you think this intra-corporate uh, activities will ex- accelerate? How do you think employees will engage with these sort of, you know, fun events or training? Or how do you handle what Howard was mentioning before about how do we bring in a new employee and, and get them engaged? And at, at the end of the day, is the rub really here we're trying to um, – get corporate retention of employees, and if we start to notice greater and greater turnover, to what extent um, will people view this as problematic and encourage in-person corporate events to, to get that culture going? Well, I, I mean, again, I think it really boils down to being interactive. So, it, you know, it has to be interactive. It can't be just another webinar where somebody's onboarding employees and they're just lecturing because that's boring and then people have their three screens and they're doing other things. If they're being engaged and they're having to talk and participate, I think that um, it will be successful. I think, you know, there's never going to be a replacement for in-person, but after COVID is over, nobody is all going to be in person anymore. So you're going to need to have these kind of events on a regular basis. And, you know, this is where the whole new market and new challenges is to come up with things that actually are interactive, not lectures, webinar-based. Okay. All right. This is the part of the show where we pivot to ending with a few comments about optimism. What, what I mean by that is is it's 10 – during this COVID experience and, and in the 31 weeks of this show, we sometimes get very pessimistic about uh, the economic decline and, and the virus. So I thought we could go around and ask each person what they're optimistic about. Uh, Howie, I'm going to start with you. Um, what are you optimistic about out of this? So sticking to my lane, I'm going to pick something that I think is, is, some, is not typically thought of. Obviously, I'm optimistic about how quickly the industry adapted to virtual, but what, what I'm going to point out is that a lot of people with disabilities uh, have a hard time at conferences and events. You know, think of someone in a wheelchair having to navigate a conference center or a large convention center, and they're usually not at the front of the room often in terms of where they're positioned. Zoom or, or a virtual platform basically removes all of those barriers. Uh, you know, whether you're a shy person as well, you know, it, it presents an opportunity to um, democratize the playing field from a participant and attendee standpoint. And I think we're seeing a lot of awareness of that moving forward. So I'm actually encouraged by that. Okay. Wendy, what about you? Uh, two things. First, um, this new thing where everyone, where a lot of companies are going to be working remotely, even after COVID's over, I think it's just going to increase job satisfaction and increase the quality of life for a lot of people. They won't have those commutes and the stress and lose, you know, two to four hours a day of commuting. I just think that there, it's, we're going to be a happier America. Like, I, you know, Nicholas Kristof recently wrote that, you know, America falls in, in happiness in the world, you know, quality of life is like we're like number 28 and I think that this really can help us move up um, with a better quality of life and then the second thing is that um, there's this whole new business segment that is going to arise for these virtual vendors where sometimes a lot of these vendors were doing things locally or regionally and now they can really 
perform their services for people all over the world, just like kind of like e-commerce has provided um, platforms for people to sell their products all over the world. Now they can sell their virtual talents all over the world. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Okay. Uh, Rob, Bob Konecki? Rob, are you still with us? All right, Mitch. Mitch, do you want to end on a point of optimism? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm, it's. I think what I mentioned in my earlier remarks and reiterating some of what Wendy was just saying. But you know, I'm optimistic that flexibility about work from home, despite everyone giving it lip service for many years, is really finally acceptable and here to stay, even after this pandemic ends. While it clearly won't make sense for everyone, and even beyond some of the obvious people. There's evidence recently from Google that engineers are less productive working from home. But I think in addition to what Wendy talked about, you know, if you're not commuting two hours a day every day, it could really improve your life. You know, and I said last week can maybe also help improve the environment. I mean, I've been, I live in Los Angeles and ever since March, I think we've all noticed, um, you know, that the air is better. Uh, there's more creatures around. Um, and, and I think that that's something that we're all starting to appreciate and would like to try to continue. Okay. Mark Levinson, do you have anything you want to end on the optimistic side? Uh, sure. I, I think um, one thing about um, some of the trends in globalization that um, we talked about earlier is that uh, they may relieve some of the wage pressures on blue-collar workers in this country. Um, as manufacturing becomes uh, more specialized and, and uh, um, more uh, technological in, in nature and, and uh, the workers have much higher skill levels, um, they're going to be doing um, higher value work and they're going to be getting paid for it. And, and that's a change. Manufacturing workers have gotten kind of beaten around in recent years. So I think that's a good thing. Hey, Larry, it's Rob. I found my mute button. Oh, good. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think actually we're seeing that the pandemic is speeding up the pace of digital transformation, and that is actually going to, in the long run, have a positive effect for cybersecurity. We're moving away from these legacy antiquated systems that we can't work with remotely to ones in which we can. And so... I'm seeing actually a speed up and an increase in investment in areas that are going to make us more secure in the long run. Okay. Tim, um, I guess two-part question. One, I want you to talk about optimism, uh, but I also received an email from Dan Jurgen asking you to talk a little bit about uh, electrification of trucks and autos. Well, actually, it's a one-part question. That's, that's good news. That, that's what I'm optimistic about. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the electrification um, of, of the auto and truck industry and, and the cleaner air that should result. Um, <clears throat> we've been extremely busy this year, um, especially. We've been working on electrification over the past two years, or three or four years, actually, on, on behalf of the incumbent truck makers, the suppliers, the fleets, uh, and the disruptors, and, and the SPACs who are financing them in a huge way this year. Um, we think there are a lot of applications that combine a local duty cycle with, with enough mileage, um, enough regenerative braking, um, and home-to-base operations um, that actually make the TCO, total cost of ownership analysis, better than diesel, uh, even at current industry costs. And 
those include school buses, medium duty local delivery trucks, refuse trucks, transit buses, and yard spotters. So a bunch of niches, but um, we we don't think Class 8 tractors are quite ripe for it yet, uh, the, the over-the-highway trucks. Uh, uh, though, of course, Tesla has a significant cost advantage, and, and that could get them a lot closer. Um, but they still need and to so deliver you're referring on there. always to the short, um, the short traffic, the short haul with um, a lot of braking. Is that, is that where the other does a better job? That's where it's doing best right now. I think Tesla still needs to sort of deliver on the, their ambitious battery cost reduction targets uh, to get there on the longer haul stuff in the next few years, um, in my opinion. Um, We've also been been really involved in, in California's um, recently approved uh, new low NOx and zero emissions vehicles um, and NOx is nitrous oxides um, regulations. Uh, and I can tell you the cost of incum- the incumbent internal combustion engines is going to rise a lot in the coming years, which will make commercial EVs more cost competitive. Um, and there's a lot of inertia in the auto and truck making industries, but with support from regulations, some big carbon reduction promises from the tech giants and other consumer brands, um, and just fundamental cost economics, I think the disruption from EVs is, is in all likelihood going to, to gain momentum in the next few years. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Josh Schiffer, going way back to you, uh, what are you optimistic about? Yeah, so uh, perhaps this is a bit personal, but I think the optimism I get on a day-to-day basis is simply seeing the dedication uh, of my colleagues, both locally and around the country, and, and uh, <clears throat> trying to fight this pandemic. Uh, Today, the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, was quoted as saying, we're not going to control the pandemic. And I I can just tell you firsthand, you know, my interface with with this virus has been on the front lines, seeing patients with colleagues. It's been uh, with the Department of Health trying to model the local epidemiology, and it's been uh, in in terms of trying to design optimal trials for treatment and, and vaccines with colleagues at the Fred Hutch. And just nobody's subscribing to this point of view. It's all, it's all hands on deck. And, you know, without any question, it's been the most inspiring uh, professional experience of, of my life. And that, that gives me uh, a great deal of optimism uh, d- despite uh, the, these trying times. That's great. Okay. Um, with that, um, so that ends the regular scheduled program. I do want to make a plug alert. Uh, for what we have going on next week. Um, we're going to have epidemiologist Lauren Myers talk about uh, R-naught and, and the, the pace of, of, of uh, the COVID vaccine expanding. We're going to have Dr. Andrew Levine from UCLA. He's going to tell us about the fog and the neurological problems caused by COVID. Uh, Nicholas Bloom at Stanford uh, will discuss, uh, he's a professor at the Business School. Um, Heidi Gray is a childhood friend of mine who until recently was head of human resources at News Corp, the challenges that COVID is having in HR. Uh, Rory Stewart, who ran for prime minister in the UK, will discuss populism. And James Fishkin, a Stanford professor, will discuss public deliberation uh, and helping us make public policy choices. Uh, that's our um, Line up for next week. Uh, a final reminder that we've just opened the What Happens Next website. So if you want to re-listen to this program or listen to any of the programs live today, you can. Uh, we'll be able to do so momentarily, and you can stay up to speed with regards to the agendas for the upcoming weeks. With that, I would like to thank my co-hosts, 
Rick Banks and Mitch Feynman. And I, of course, would like to thank each of the speakers for their time and efforts, and to our listeners, as always, for engaging. Thank you so much, and you may disengage at this time. Thanks again. Bye-bye.